continuing in our study of chapter 26 of the Confession of Faith of the Church. Uh, Last week, we looked at paragraph 7 of chapter 26. And if you remember, I said that at first glance, the contents of the paragraph kind of seem obvious, almost like it doesn't necessarily need to be stated. Um, And yet the the idea behind it is that the local church is the first subject of ministerial church power, and we discussed what exactly that means. We saw that it follows from this that the local church is independent in terms of church power. She is not dependent on any other group or ecclesiastical body or even a magistrate um, to exercise her church power. She has all of it within herself. If you remember, I said that uh, it was Henry Jacob who very pithily and succinctly summarized this idea. He said this in the phrase, there is nothing without the church above it. Without meaning outside, okay? There is nothing without the church above it in terms of anything between the local church and Christ. There's no other ecclesiastical body. There's no bishop or archbishop or ultimate bishop of the whole world, there is just Christ above the local church um, in terms of church power. Well, today we are looking at paragraph 8 of chapter 26. And if paragraph 7 asserts that the local church is the first subject of all church power, paragraph 8 begins to break down how this church power operates and is distributed within the local body itself. Now here, too, we are going to butt up against and challenge some caricatures of congregationalism, okay? If you remember, uh, for example, last week I said uh, concerning the independence of the local church, congregationalism is often caricatured as this kind of you-can't-tell-me-what-to-do attitude, right? You can, never, um, you can never say anything about me. I have complete autonomy from Christ, and yet we saw... Um, that historically, that's not how Congregationalists approach the matter at all, right? Well, with paragraph 8, we are going to deal with some other caricatures and misunderstandings of Congregationalism, namely that it is a pure democracy. It's a pure democracy. Has anyone ever heard that idea of Congregationalism, that it is a pure democracy? You can raise your hand. If you're nodding yes, you should raise your hand, all right? So, okay. Well, this is typically how you will sometimes historically and even today hear of congregationalism. It's caricatured as mob rule. It is a pure democracy, if you will. Um, I would even say many Baptists today do not own the term congregational because they think that's what it means. Now, you might think, well, hold on, aren't Baptists congregational? Well, yes, Historically, they they have been and they ought to be. But what I mean by that is while all Baptists really still affirm the idea of the autonomy of the local church, they will sometimes deny that their churches are quote-unquote congregational because they believe that means pure democracy, okay? Now, my response to that and what I want to argue today is that historical congregationalism on the point of how power is exercised within the local church is often very, very misunderstood, and I would say 
most people are only really reading secondary sources in terms of historical congregationalism. Um, you see this sometimes with even really good historians, um, people who ought to know better, who in many other ways are great historians, they'll speak of congregationalism as kind of a free-for-all, pure democracy. As soon as somebody says that, they're entirely dependent on secondary sources and secondary sources that are wrong as well, okay? I would say the early congregationalists, however, would not have recognized their own position in, that, in those terms as a pure democracy, and they also explicitly rejected that. They explicitly rejected that. For me, if there is one word that I would use to describe congregationalism and how they thought of the exercise of church power in the local church, it would be the word balanced. Balance. Here on this point, I would say that in many ways, historic congregationalism does not fit into the many categories that we often use for this topic today. For example, have you ever heard of the idea of elder rule? Can someone tell me what elder rule is? Who's not a church officer or intern or seminary educated? Anybody? What's elder rule? Come on. Yes, sir. Yeah, they do everything, right? That's kind of what we mean by that. Who's heard of elder led? Yeah. I even use my, I kind of would call my own position that, though I think it's sometimes a little, it's a little, it doesn't entirely help um, with discussing it. Who's ever heard of congregational rule? Maybe you've heard of that. That's kind of the third option. I've never met anyone who actually, I've never met anyone who actually calls that position their own, but it's often described as this position out there somewhere that exists, um, which is kind of a, a pure democracy. Okay, I would say if you were to ask the early congregationalists whether they believe in elder rule, elder-led church government, or congregational church government, they would have said yes. <laughs> they would have said yes. Elders rule in the church. They do. In fact, they would go so far as to even say in a qualified sense, the power of ruling and governing is really only invested in the elders, right? Like, what? That sounds contradictory to some things we heard last week. How can that be the case? Well, you have to hear them out fully, and they can be highly nuanced, but that's what I really appreciate about them. They can account for a lot of biblical truth because they're nuanced in their categories and their terminology. And if we really want to have a robust ecclesiology, we want to go back and kind of recover some of those older nuances and terms, okay? That being said, I would add, though, that because they are highly nuanced, this is one of the reasons why they tend to be misunderstood today, and their writings can even be misappropriated to some degree. What I mean by that is if you really believe in what you call elder rule, what we referred to that today, there's a ton of passages you can go and find in the early congregationalists to support your idea that that is what they held to, right? On the other hand, if you believe in this kind of radical pure democracy, there's a ton of things you can find in their writings that will establish that as the confessional view or the historic view among Baptists or congregationalists, okay? But to really appreciate the robustness 
of what they're arguing for. You have to take it all together. When you do so, you have a very balanced understanding of power within the local church. Furthermore, and we'll consider this just a little bit today, not a whole lot, more next week as we look at the election of church officers. But if there were a second word that I could use to describe congregationalism, it would be Catholic. Catholic in, in a good sense, okay? What I mean by that is that although what we call congregationalism is, is a de- really developed as a movement in the early 17th century, it's not a 17th century invention. Its roots go really, really, really deep. And I mean first century, some of the earliest non-canonical writings deep. And we're going to look at that. And so I want you to appreciate that, um, that, that congregationalism has really deep roots in, in church history. We'll see a little bit of that today, um, but you can be confident in your ecclesiology in that regard. All right? Well, if you have your confession, go ahead and open up to 26, paragraph 8. We're going to read through it, and we'll break it down, okay? Paragraph 8. It says, A particular church gathered and completely organized, according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders and deacons. Okay? Bishops slash elders, same thing, or deacons. Well, what the confession gives us in that paragraph is a picture of a local church that is, quote, completely organized, as it says. It's completely organized. And it's completely organized because it does not just have members, but it also has officers. A church may exist without officers, but it's not completely organized. It's not the fullness of what Christ has in mind. We see this in several texts in the New Testament namely of churches existing without officers, particularly when you're dealing with brand new churches that had just been planted by the apostles, right? Typically, the apostles would go to a city, proclaim the gospel. There would be converts by the work of the Holy Spirit. They would gather them into a church. They would spend some time teaching on, or some time teaching, and before they moved on, they would appoint elders in the church, right? Or at other times... They would preach, there would be converts, they'd gather them into a church, they'd move on to the next town, and on their way back, they'd double back, and then they would appoint elders in the churches. However, even without elders, these groups of disciples are called churches. For example, if you have your Bible, open to Acts chapter 14. Acts 14. 21 through 23. Acts 14, 21 through 23. This is at the end of Paul's first missionary journey. It says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, 
and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they are going back. They've kind of done their first circuit um, into Asia Minor, and they're heading back. And as they do so, they're encouraging the saints in each of the churches of those cities. And before they leave a city, they appoint elders. Now, we will look next week at, at whether there's a conflict there between a church um, electing their own elders and apostles appointing them. There's, there's no conflict. We'll, we'll look at that, okay? But that's what they do. And so you can see that it is true that churches can exist at least for a time without elders. Um, these elders that are appointed in verse 23 are appointed in what? In a church, implying the church exists before and apart from the elders, okay? And yet, while they are indeed true churches without elders, yet they are not complete. They're not fully grown, you might say. For example, turn with me to Titus 1.5. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Titus 1, 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, thereby cities, he means the churches in each of those cities, and yet Paul tells Titus to set in order what remains. He says, what remains? That's a Greek phrase that can mean what is lacking or what remains in the sense of something remains to be done. Okay? So he left him there to set to... Something still needs to be done in Crete. And Titus, this is why I put you here. Well, what needs to be done? Well, he tells us to appoint elders. Elders are lacking in the churches probably other things, instruction, but elders and appointing elders comes right after the phrase of what, what remains to be done. As we come to paragraph 8 then, we see a picture of a complete church, one in which there is nothing remaining to be done in a certain sense. It's completely made of members and officers, members and officers. Now, if you just stand back for a minute and think of how we tend to think of power within the local church today, either elder rule, elder-led, congregational rule, whatever, we're really thinking of a spectrum between those two parties, aren't we? For example, if we have a spectrum and the elders are on this side and the members are on this side, congregational rule is where? Well, it'd be over here. Where would elder rule be? It'd be way over on this side right? Elder lad would be like somewhere right here, but both parties would be like, oh, that's, that's totally wrong, right? We tend to think even in terms almost of a power struggle, kind of a tug of war between those two parties of members on the one hand and officers on the other hand. However, as con the Congregationalists came to this question, they spoke of these two groups as existing together in harmony and in a certain sense, as not, not in any conflict or competition with one another, because they each have their proper place and their lane, so to speak, 
Each one has their lane that they kind of run in. This is why if you were to ask them if they believe in elder rule, they would have said yes. If you believe in congregational rule, they, they would have said yes. And for them, that's not a contradiction at all in how they understand that, okay? For example, the Cambridge platform says this very beautiful, beautifully. I like how it says this. This power of government in the elders doth not in any way prejudice the power of privilege in the brotherhood. So the elders do have power, but it's not in conflict. It's not butting up against uh, the power that is in the brotherhood, okay? It says, as neither the power of privilege in the brethren doth prejudice the power of government in the elders, but they may sweetly agree together. So it's not a tug-of-war, okay? Each has their own lane, and their power is exercised, you could almost say, in a certain sphere. But really, there's no conflict between them. The only conflict comes when someone gets out of their lane, okay? Well, how can this be the case? How do we understand this? In order to understand that statement, we first have to understand how the Congregationalists understood the idea of power within the local church. And right here, just right off, right off the bat, this is something I really appreciate about them. They have a very nuanced, kind of more broad understanding of power, which is really helpful and allows us to account for all the biblical data. What I mean by that is today and at other times in church history, we tend to almost speak of power exclusively in terms of power over something, right? You have a power over. The elders have power over the church. They are over it and above it, ruling it or something like that. We tend to almost speak of power exclusively in those terms. Presbyterians tend to speak in, that, in, in kind of those terms, which is why when they hear congregationalism, they have a tizzy because they say, well, the people have power. To them, when they think of verses that say elders rule and people are to submit to their elders, they go, oh, so the governed are really the governors in congregationalism. That's, that's kind of how they think. But I would say it's because they have a very narrow definition of power. Power for the congregationalist, most broadly speaking, simply means authority from Christ to lawfully do something he commands. Authority from Christ to lawfully do something that Christ commands. If Christ has commanded something or instituted something in his word, something ecclesiastical to be done, then whoever is commanded to do it has power and authority from Christ to do such a thing. Most broadly, that's how they understand it. For example, John Owen explains, the power of the church is nothing but a right to perform church duties in obedience unto the commands of Christ and according to his mind. Listen to that again. The power of the church is nothing but a right to perform church duties in obedience unto the commands of Christ and according to his mind. So if Christ has called someone or instituted that someone do something in Scripture, he has also given them authority to do it. In Scripture, is it according to the mind of Christ that church members call and appoint and choose their church officers? Well, yes. Well, then Christ has given them power and authority to do so. Is it according to the mind of Christ that the members of the church be the final court in terms of the decision of excommunication? Well, yes, Matthew 18. 
Well, then they have power to do so. Do elders rule in the churches? Come on, Jason. Let's, let's rule, bro. Let's rule. Do elders rule? Yes. 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Well, then elders have power and authority from Christ to rule and govern the church. But note, not all power is a power to rule because not every command from Christ is a command to rule, okay? And so there are diversities of power because there are diversities of duties and functions within the church. Thomas Goodwin and Philip Nye explain it this way. They give a very helpful example. They say, This difference of power doth easily appear in comparing the interests of a father and his virgin daughter in his giving her away in marriage and her concurrence or agreement with him therein. A virgin daughter hath a power truly and properly so called indeed and a power ultimately to dissent upon an unsatisfied dislike indeed, and it must be an act of her consent that maketh a marriage valid. Our confession says the same thing in chapter 25 on marriage. It says, Marriage is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. You have to be able to consent to this person, otherwise it's, it's not a valid, valid marriage. So they're saying, if this young daughter... Does not, does not consent, there is no marriage. She has a power and a right to dissent from some guy because he's ugly or he's, you know, whatever he is. He's, uh, he's Gaston, right, in Beauty and the Beast. But they continue. But yet her power, her parents have a power to guide her in her choice, which she ought in duty to obey, and a power which also must occur to bestow her or the marriage is invalid. So just as she has power to dissent from marrying someone, they have power to refuse to give their consent in giving her, such that if they don't have their consent, it is also not a valid marriage, right? Now, obviously, we're kind of talking about a, a, a younger woman. That's how they're thinking. Um, but it would not be a valid marriage. And it indeed, I think, what, before 18 depends on the state maybe, before 18, if there's no parental consent, it's not a valid marriage, right? That's the difference in the power that they are talking about. Not all power is a power to rule and govern. In that situation, that would belong to the parents. And yet both have a power and authority and a right to give their consent to something which is necessary for its validity. From this then, with many others, the Congregationalists argued that church power is a mixed power. It's mixed. And the government of the church is a mixed government. It's not entirely a power of the elders, nor is it entirely a power of the people, but each has a power in their own way in the church. For example, the Cambridge Platform says this, This government of the church is a mixed government, and so hath been acknowledged long before the term of independency was heard of. Now, that's true. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to look at that. But as I said, this is an ancient principle, the idea of a mixed church government, okay? It says, in respect of Christ, 
the head and king of the church and the sovereign power residing in him and exercised by him, it is a monarchy. It is a monarchy. We are governed by a king. He's in heaven right now, but he's ruling in the church, in his kingdom, through his word and his spirit. He's even present here today among his people through his spirit, right? We have a king. That's why we call it what? The kingdom of heaven, not the democracy or the aristocracy of heaven, right? It's the kingdom of heaven because of our king. But it continues, in respect of the body or the brotherhood of the church, church members, and power from Christ granted unto them, it resembles a democracy. So there are elements of democracy or what is sometimes called popular government, meaning a government of the people. That is part of church government. Here you have to be careful. You have to be careful that you don't cherry-pick the Congregationalists when you read them, because there are times when they unashamedly confess and affirm that there is a democratic or or democracy element of church government, but they don't mean by that it's a pure democracy, okay? In fact, John Cotton says, democracy, I do not conceive that God ever did ordain as a fit government either for church or commonwealth. If the people be governor, who shall be governed? But also, he will affirm that there's an element of democracy in the local church. So you can't take it either way you want and run with it, okay? You have to read them on their own terms. Lastly, the Cambridge Platform says, in respect of the presbytery, or the elders of a local church, and power committed to them, it is an aristocracy. It is an aristocracy, okay? So you plebs down below, get out of the way when me and Jason walk down the hallway. We are the noblemen, whatever you want to call us. It is an aristocracy, okay? It is mixed, and therefore, it is balanced. I'm very convinced if you are overly democratic in your approach to church government, and we were to take you and put you back in New England, or to put you back in an early Baptist church, and you were to see how it functioned, it would smack of Presbyterianism to you. If you're overly democratic, I think you would be like, this is too heavy, right? Look at, these, look at these elders drunk on their power. If you are overly elder heavy and we were to take you and put you back then, you would think this is chaos. Look at these people and all the power they're given. But for the Congregationalists, it's very well balanced and mixed, and we want to take into consideration their whole view. Furthermore, as I said, this view is very Catholic. This is not a... 17th century Puritan invention, okay? The idea that the church is a mixed government of monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. And just to prove it, we don't have a lot of time, we can't really even go that far into history, but just to prove it, I want to read something from Peter Martyr Vermeule. You know, Vermeule, the famous Congregationalist? No, he's not, that'd be anachronistic, and right? Um, but listen to what he says. He died about 40 years before I would even say historically, congregationalism, as we call it, really developed, okay? But listen to what he says. He says, it is needful to discuss what sort the society of the church is. So what kind of a society is the church? What is it when we're, when we're talking about the church? He says, it is not simple. Not meaning it's hard to understand. He means it is not one thing, but it is compounded. It is compounded. 
It is compounded of one alone, of many good governors, and of the government of the people. He says, with respect to Christ, it shall be called a monarchy. For he is our king, who with his own blood hath purchased the church unto himself. He is now gone into heaven, yet doth he govern this kingdom of his, not with visible presence, but by the spirit and word of the Holy Scriptures. So Christ, as I've said, as the Cambridge Platform says, is the monarch, the king of the church. He says, and there be in the church those who do execute the office for him, bishops, elders, doctors, and others bearing rule, in respect of whom it may justly be called a government of many. These offices are not committed unto them according to the estimation of riches and revenues, nor by favor, beauty, or nobility's sake, but in respect of merits and virtues. But if it be otherwise, it is done against the rule. So these officers are gifted by Christ, and only those who, who have those gifts and those virtues can be in office. Otherwise, it is done according to the, uh, uh, against the rule. Okay? But notice, in that respect, it's a government of many, but not all. Lastly, he says, but because in the church there be matters of very great weight and, re- and importance referred unto the people, as it appears in the Acts of the Apostles, therefore the church hath a consideration of politic government. Politic, just think democracy or an ability to vote, okay? But of the most weight are accounted excommunication, absolution, choosing of ministers, and such like, so as it is concluded that no man can be excommunicated without the consent of the church. Then he says this. In this way, it stood with the commonwealth of Rome. It created a dictator who behaved himself as a monarch, It appointed also a senate, by reason whereof it might be called a government of many, howbeit in the most weighty affairs and in confirming of laws and decrees the matter was brought unto the common people of Rome by means whereof it was judged to be a government of the people. Peter Martyr Vermeule, the congregations, as you can see, right? But that's just very common. We will look at this... um, Church history is going to be our friends as we lovingly battle our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, okay? Um, We will look at Heinrich Bullinger. We'll look at Luther next week and all kinds of things. Um, But just note, it's it's not just this 17th century kind of curiosity, okay? Well, what I'd like us to do now with the time is to break down in greater detail the power that is had by each, the elders and the members, and to examine... Um, of what each one consists, okay? I'd like to start first with the elders because that's what's mentioned in the rest of paragraph 8. So look with me again at paragraph 8. Any questions before we jump on? Any questions? Yeah. Um, the first thought, my first mind went to Aristocats because Carlos is just watching that. Um, but like the nobility, so people of high birth, so think like um, dukes and lords and all that stuff, right? Um, so in that sense, kind of people with a lot of money and land, the gentry who kind of rule over the, the lowly plebs, right? So that's what me and Jason are, okay? Any other questions? Yeah. Yes, okay. All right. 
So midway through paragraph 8, it says, The officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered. I'll just stop there. Notice, while the church does, in a sense, choose her officers, really what they are doing is confirming that a man has been called and chosen by Christ. It says, The officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart from the church. For this reason, while church officers are indeed accountable to the church, yet they are first and foremost accountable to Christ the King, they are not mere hirelings of the church to do the bidding of the church. They were first and foremost called by the King, okay? Next, note it says that these officers are chosen by Christ, quote, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world. So elders, according to our confession of faith, have power. They are not powerless. They do not merely go along with the whims of the church, but they have a power in the church from Christ to rule. Okay? Now let's break this down even more, and here I want to read the Cambridge Platform because it goes into greater detail. It says, Church government or rule is placed by Christ in the officers of the church, who are therefore called rulers while they rule with God. So note, church government, church rule, not in the broadest sense as everything that pertains to government or power, but in the narrow sense of ruling, that is only placed within the officers and specifically the elders of the church. Now again, they cannot wield that power however they please, but only within the limitations for which Christ gave it. If they step out of that, they're misusing their power, and they are subject to the church. The platform continues, yet in case of maladministration, they are subject to the power of the church, according as hath been said before. So just because you have power doesn't mean you can rule however you want. You have to use the power that Christ gave for the purposes and according to the manner that Christ gave it. Okay? When you do that, you're stepping outside of the of really of your power. It's just an abuse. They, while they exercise their power within the bounds that Christ has given them, nevertheless, they do indeed rule and govern the church. The platform says, The Holy Ghost frequently, yea, always, where it mentioneth church rule and church government, ascribes it to the elders." whereas the work and duty of the people is expressed in the phrase of obeying their elders and submitting themselves unto them in the Lord. So as it is manifest that an organic or complete church is a body politic consisting of some that are governors and some that are governed in the Lord. Okay, Again, this is why our terminology of elder rule, although I don't call myself that, because that's misleading. Elders do rule, all right? We see this, for example, in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have a charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction 
that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Note there, the elders have a charge over. They are over the flock. The Cambridge platform continues in greater detail. The power which Christ has committed to the elders is to feed and rule the church of God and accordingly to call the church together upon any weighty occasion. And when the members are so called without just cause, they may not refuse to come. Nor when they are come, depart before they are dismissed, nor speak in the church before they have leave from the elders, nor continue so doing when they require silence, nor may they oppose nor contradict the judgment or sentence of the elders without sufficient and weighty cause, because such practices are manifestly contrary to order and government and inlets of disturbance and tend to confusion. So elders rule, and they rule also in church meetings. Not absolutely, but they moderate. They guide. When we go to our association meetings, if you want to speak, you, you have to get hold up your hand for the moderator. And he goes, yes, please speak. Otherwise, sometimes we're just talking back and forward, and sometimes the moderator will go, uh, guys, I need you to let me call in, okay? It's, it's crazy. It's cacophonous otherwise. Now, elders cannot just tell you to be silent because you're criticizing their brilliant idea, okay? Which is not so brilliant and perhaps contrary to the word of God. It's not that kind of a power to silence everybody, but you may admonish and even require the unruly to be silent, okay? Furthermore, while the membership of the church retains their power even after they appoint elders, right? For example, they don't lose their prerogatives from Christ, say, to excommunicate or to appoint elders. Yet once there are elders, after that, all acts of the church are led by the elders. This is why I also like the term elder-led, because elders do lead, right? One way to think of this is that the elders, they're like the quarterbacks. They're the captains. The elders cannot excommunicate without the consent of the church, but once the church gives its consent, the elders pronounce the sentence. The elders cannot install and appoint another elder without the consent of the church, but once the church gives its consent, the elders lay their hands on them and ordain them, okay? The platform says, it belongs also unto the elders to examine any officers or members before they be received of the church, to receive the accusations brought to the church, and to prepare them for the church's hearing. In handling of offenses and other matters before the church, they have power to declare and publish the counsel and will of God touching the same, and to pronounce sentence with consent of the church. Lastly, they have power when they dismiss the people to bless them in the name of the Lord. So in many ways, the elders are leading. They're doing a lot of the legwork. They are serving the body and preparing it so that when the body is gathered, the body can give its informed decision. Okay? That is the power of the elders. To the power of the members or the brethren, the platform says this. The power granted by Christ unto the body of the church and brotherhood is a prerogative or privilege which the church doth exercise. 
So on the one hand, we do agree that elders have the rule and government of the church, and yet this does not take away those Christ-given rights and privileges and prerogatives of the brotherhood. We agree with the Presbyterians. If a Presbyterian says to you, well, I think elders rule and have the government in the church, you can say, yeah, well, so do I, right? I don't disagree with you on that. I do rule. They don't rule me. I rule over them, right, in a servant-shepherd kind of way, okay? But my rule does not cancel out their Christ-given prerogatives either. I can't just take those away. Christ gave them to you. It explains these prerogatives. First, in choosing their own officers, whether elders or deacons. Now, again, we'll look at this more in depth next week. This is super ancient. Um, I think maybe what's the earliest church history document after Scripture? What, the Didache? They've argued, I've heard people say they now think it's first century, right? First century, outside of Scripture, you see the church appointing its own officers. Okay, it's very ancient. We'll look at this next week, okay? Which is funny, because even when they have bishops and episcopacy, they don't deny, so it's almost like even higher than Presbyterianism, but they don't deny the people's right to choose their own officers. It's kind of interesting. Secondly, in admission of their own members... And therefore, there is great reason they should have power to remove any from their fellowship again. Let me point out two things to you. First, those two things that were just mentioned, the choosing of officers and receiving or casting out of the congregation, those are the two main privileges or prerogatives of the people. We could also say, Vermeule uses this language and others use it of other weighty matters, right? If there's, since excommunication is such a weighty matter and it requires the people's consent, well, similarly, other weighty matters would do so as well. But typically, those are the two, choosing of officers and receiving or casting out of the body. Secondly, this is important, there's a kind of argument there. I don't know if you heard this, but it's very common in terms of the exercise of church power and not just among congregationalists. Listen to what it says. In admission of their own members, and therefore, there is great reason they should have power to remove any from their fellowship again. That kind of argument is common in terms of ecclesiology. Namely, if you have power from Christ to do something, you have power to undo it as well. Really, this is reflected in the language of the keys themselves. What are the two things the keys can do? Bind and loose or unbind, right? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So it's common, not just among the congregationalists, but others as well, to argue if the congregation can receive members into the church, it also has power to cast them out. If the congregation can appoint officers, it has power to depose them as well, all right? The platform continues and explains kind of both of these together. In case an elder offend incorrigibly, the matter so requiring, as, other, uh, as the church had power to call him to office, so they have power according to order, the council of other churches where it may be had directing thereto to remove him from office. 
So just as they had power to call him, they have power to remove him. Now notice, it also says they don't need the other approval of churches, but it implies you really ought to get it and even ask guest, guest elders from sister churches to guide and direct the action, right? Because according to order, uh, Jason told a story of, is it Clement, who writes to the Corinthians and describes this very unruly manner in which there was like a coup. Um, you don't want to give the appearance that that's what, ha that's what happened. So if you have other guest ministers from, from sister churches come to advise you, and then you give your consent to remove, it, it, it kind of removes the appearance of evil. However, you don't need their authority to do so. It's, it's an in-house act, okay? All right, let's see. We should say this, too. A church only has power to do this with its officer if the officer is in sin and acting incorrigibly. If a church remove an officer, but rather it's because of their own insubordination or their own sin, they are acting outside of the scope for which Christ gave them power, and such a removal of an officer is illegitimate. Illegitimate. There are two Latin phrases throughout church history. We're going to have so much fun with Latin. You guys are going to be like, I didn't just get one Latin phrase. I got two Latin phrases today, okay? Clavis erans non ligat. I know some of you are studying Latin. Clavis, what's clavis? Keys, erans, errans. Huh? Are? Like to be? No, no. Erring keys do not bind. Erring keys do not bind. So you have the keys of the kingdom, but you can't just use it however you want. And if you're erring in the use of it, you do not legitimately bind. Because you can't just make everything a legitimate act just because you have the keys. Another phrase, ecclesia litigans non ligat. Ecclesia litigans non ligat. A quarreling church does not bind. That's really important in terms of the Reformation because all the reformers were excommunicated. <laughs> but they could point back and say, well, Clavis era non ligat. You did not actually cast me out because you're illegitimate. You don't even have power to do this. You, you're not even a true church in this sense. So you don't even have the keys, right? So, Erring keys do not bind. A quarreling church does not bind. You have to use the keys for the purpose and in a manner which Christ gave it, okay? So, in closing up, do you believe in elder rule? I believe in it. If by elder rule, you do not mean that elders do everything and they take away the privileges and prerogatives of the people, but if you mean that elders rule in the church, well, yeah, Scripture says they do. Do we believe in elder-led church government? Well, yeah. The church appoints elders. They don't forfeit their prerogatives, but the elders do, they're kind of like the main ones who execute those prerogatives once they are installed into office. And lastly, do we believe in congregational rule? Yeah, if you mean by that, not that the governed are the governors, but if you mean that the people have a certain amount of 
privileges and prerogatives given by Christ that elders and no one else can take away, then yes, we do. The point of all this is to argue our church government in congregationalism is not a pure democracy. If I hear you say that, Jason's going to bonk you over the head. It's not a pure democracy. It's a mixed church government and very balanced. And really, you can see the wisdom of Christ. Should we expect anything less from our Lord as he institutes power in the local church? Any questions?